Disclaimer, this content is meant for information only and not as a diagnosis or medical treatment for any condition. If you or a loved one needs help, please seek out a qualified medical professional for assistance. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Katie Oshta, BSN, RN, IBCLC, and infant feeding specialist. Quench your thirst for knowledge and travel with me across the nation to discover, learn, collaborate, and better serve clients from all over the globe. Let's ride and thrive together. Today on the podcast, we have Montika Collins, MA, BS, BSN, RN, CLC, IBCLC. Montika serves as an advanced holistic lactation consultant at Innovations Lactation and Breastfeeding, an international board-certified lactation consultant, and a holistic integrative nurse, health and wellness coach, body worker, medical herbalist, and nursing faculty at Oral Roberts University. As an activist, Montika has served Oklahoma's Breastfeeding Coalition, COBA, the Coalition of Oklahoma Breastfeeding Advocates, as a chair and board member. Her passion for the health and well-being of minority women and children has led her to co-found the 5013 nonprofit organization, Interventions Family Wellness, Inc., and she has served her community as the co-president and CEO at Interventions Family Wellness. Montika graduated from Maryland University of Integrative Health with a Master's of Arts in Health and Wellness Coaching and a concentration in medical herbalism. She also earned a Bachelor of Science in Biology and Chemistry from Northeastern University. Montika graduated magna cum laude from Oral Roberts University with a Bachelor's of Science in Nursing. She has over 300 hours of continuing education in courses specific to the care of the mother-baby diet. In addition to teaching nursing students, she has also trained healthcare professionals on how to utilize and integrate alternative healthcare practices into their medical practices. She holds a group training and seminars for various perinatal providers. Montika serves local women, breastfeeding mothers and their infants, providing them with health and wellness coaching, herbal support, body work, and advanced holistic lactation and breastfeeding support. Please welcome Montika Collins to the podcast today. Thanks so much for joining me today, Montika. I was so excited to reach out to you and to hear about what you're doing in the Tulsa community. And I'm really excited. How does one even go about opening a birth center? That sounds like such a monumental project. So it's been a long time coming. Thank you so much for having me. I am super excited to be with you today. We have maybe three, I believe, birth centers in the Tulsa area, and none of them are owned or operated, nor do they have any women of color working in any of them. And I am a Black woman myself. And one of the things, there was a movie that came out recently on Hulu called Aftershock. And in that movie, Tulsa is one of the places that they highlighted. And it was great that they were able to come here, but I actually spoke with one of the women that they were working with, I'm not sure if that was who they actually went with, but she was looking for a Black midwife and she wanted a complete Black birth team. And I was very disappointed at the time because I, I told her, I was like, I can't, I can't offer that to you yet. We are in the process of trying to be able to offer that. Um, but it's definitely um, an uphill road when there are no Black licensed midwives in our state. So we're in Oklahoma. We now have one Black licensed midwife, and she is a certified professional midwife, but we don't have any practicing certified professional midwives or certified nurse midwives. So A little bit about myself. I am a nurse. I graduated from ORU. I have a bachelor's in nursing. I have a bachelor's in science. And I'm I'm an IBCLC. I'm a CLC. And I have a master's degree in health and wellness coaching and medical herbalism. So I'm very passionate about health and women and infants, everything women's health related. I really believe that our maternal mortality rates and our infant mortality rates would 
greatly improve if we addressed life and wellness from a holistic standpoint. And that is really my passion, creating that access and information and exposure for all women, not just affluent women, but of all women of various socioeconomic backgrounds, races, cultures, all of the things. I don't feel that just because you're a different culture, you speak a different language, you're of a different ethnicity, or even if you speak English as your first language and you're Black or Brown or White, if you live somewhere that does not have access to grocery stores, to midwifery, to lactation, those things are going to affect your quality of life from the jump. So a woman that is in the process of becoming pregnant, that gets pregnant during her pregnancy, what her health is, how that baby is brought into the world, what that infant's first food is, the lifestyle choices that mom's access to fresh, live food, that baby's ability to be able to go to the breast and breastfeed, that mom's ability to continue to breastfeed that baby for at least two years of life. If that mom decides that midwifery is the best choice for her having access to a midwife, having access to a birth center, having access to a lactation consultant and a doula, all of those things really play a part in what that family's trajectory is going to be through the life of that infant. And I want to be able to be a positive influence in changing the trajectories of everybody's life. You know, I, I, I I feel like we, that's our job as nurses to advocate and care for and influence. And I, that's my reasoning for really wanting to have the birth center. So since we have, like I said, the three, the area of town that all three of our birth centers are in, um, are all in South Tulsa, which is a very affluent area of Tulsa. North Tulsa has always been, for lack of a better term, the black side of town. A lot of people are familiar with Greenwood now and the atrocities that happened there with the Greenwood massacre and all of those different types of things. So really being able to put the birth center in a place that is historically black was also a really big deal for me. My goal eventually is to become a midwife. Right now I have three littles of my own. So going back to school for midwifery and really being at the beck and call of someone's uterus, which I believe is to be a great midwife, you have to be able to be at the beck and call of someone's uterus. And I think that's what makes, unfortunately, many obstetric practices in the way that Western medicine, the way we tend to do things in the hospital, we want to make birth fit within our schedules and and make it convenient. Absolutely. And in, in doing those things, when we try to make birth fit into our schedules and make it convenient for us, that's when we introduce a lot of interventions and we want labor to move along. We want all of the different things that start that cascade of interventions that gives us the extremely high rates of cesarean sections and and all of the issues that come along with medical interventions and birth. Yeah, I think that one of the best ways to change the outcomes in a family is exactly what you're doing is to change the mom. We all know that moms, you know, are that center. It's it's a typical role that a lot of moms fill doing everything from healthcare for their family, self-care and and food and nutrition and all of that. So when you educate and change 
what the mom knows, you have a right. chance to really impact those children growing up, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And to me, that's very much, again, more of what the midwifery model of care looks like. So that's the reason for wanting and needing to open the birth center. We wanted to be able to say, okay, yes, we can provide a midwife. And a lot of people don't know a lot about midwives. So midwives can see a woman from menses, which is an onset of their periods from menses to menopause. So we are from teenage girls to adult women, a midwife can care for that woman during those times and can really be a staple in in that family's life of teaching and making sure that they know that the decisions that they're making reproductively from their choice of birth control all the way to pre-pregnancy planning, family planning, to walking through pregnancy, getting that baby earthside, walking through lactation and postpartum on. Are, are Those are very important roles that one person can really be instrumental in. And then when we also add what we do as IBCLCs, I don't know if I mentioned that also, but I'm a, I am an IBCLC, but we are able to work with the diet, which is the mom and the baby to make sure that that baby can nurse and that that mom is comfortable and making enough milk and not having pain and all of those different types of things. When I was in the hospital and, and with many of the mamas that I see, I've heard moms say, well, I was nursing my baby and, and I ran out of milk. Or mm-hmm. you'll hear, oh, well, I ran out of milk and I <clears> went <throat> to the lactation <clears throat> professional at the hospital. And and they told me that, you know, oh, you're just not making enough milk. It must be hormonal. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So if it's hormonal, then let's fix that. Why aren't we addressing, why do we default to, you're not going to be able to breastfeed your baby. Let's just put your baby on formula rather than assessing that mom and really getting down to what that cause of that mom not making milk is. Is it truly hormonal? Because if it is, we can address the hormones. Is it that baby's not able to drive supply? If that's the case, then we can work with that baby to help that baby drive supply. I've seen cases, as I'm sure as you have, to where it's both things. We have or a multiple of things going on as to this is what's making breastfeeding difficult So being able to spend that time with a family and really be those detectives and find out exactly what's going on is just priceless. I I think unfortunately, so much of our problem with low supply is poor system design. And I mean, if it just seems like 75% of women are having trouble making enough milk. And if that were true, then we wouldn't have the population we do on the earth. You know, it just doesn't make sense to me how vast the problem is. And I think so much of it comes back to the system that where these babies are being born, how their first few days are going in their first few weeks, the lack of support, the lack of education, the amount of formula, the, the lack of, I mean, even just the the so-called help in the hospital, a lot of times when I have so many clients all across the country that tell me that they're told in the hospital to just take the baby's head and shove with love. You know, I mean, it's, there's so many things going wrong that it's almost amazing to me when I meet someone where things are going right. You know, it's, it's such a poor system design that we're not supporting these families at all. So really by the time they're one or two months postpartum, it's, it's not a surprising thing that things are quite poor because they've had so many things going against them. I agree. I think a lot of it too is the state of health in our nation. You know, when we are, we have so much inflammation, we have so much pre-diabetes, we have so much insulin resistance and all of the different things, you know, that 
can play a part in that mom's ability to make milk. I, I, for many years, I'm a little bit older, but you get pregnant and they say, oh, you're pregnant now. You're, you're eating for two and Mm -hmm. you can eat whatever you want. And it's Mm -hmm. like, no, you, you can't, you're growing a human. So you want to be the healthiest that you've ever been when you're growing a human. You want to be the healthiest that you've ever been going into pregnancy. During your pregnancy, you want to make sure that you're active, that your endurance is where it needs to be, because labor is running a marathon. You know, you are, you don't go and to run a marathon without being, your endurance being trained. You don't go to run a marathon without having any fuel, meaning, you know, food and water and all those different things. But for whatever reason in this country, we tell moms that it's fine to eat what you want. You don't have to, you know, exercise and do all these things. So then we wonder why women go into labor and they gas out. And then we also are telling them, don't eat anything just in case we have to intubate you. you know, and have to do uh, emergency sex. It's like, well, maybe if, again, we can teach this mom and this family, you know, how to, how to eat right. And then when you tell someone also, when you're dealing with various factors of socioeconomics, what a healthy diet is to you may not be what I think a healthy diet is. So really finding out, meeting people where they are, finding out what they have access to and helping them to be able to be the best where they're at within wherever they may be, right? And then saying, you want to be as healthy as you can. Mm -hmm. You want to move as much as you can, because these are the things that are going to set you up for having pregnancy that doesn't have all of the complications, hopefully helping you to be able to have a baby that's not going to come out floppy, you know, like so many babies are when they are born to a mom with gestational diabetes. You've seen those babies. They're just, they're just floppy and it's hard Mm -hmm. for them. You know, all of those things we really, these are things that we can affect and, and really try to help moms to understand that how they treat their body, how they eat, and even talking to dads. That support of the family from the father and everybody doing this thing together, it's a big deal. And so for me, being able to have the birth center, have women of color, not just Black women, Hispanic women, Burmese women, we purpose to train women of color and then also pay them well and hire them so that they can work in the community and be that mentor, help bring some economic stability to the area. All of those things are important in changing people's lives. We And that's my goal is to change life for, for the better for everybody. Great. I think you know, one of the things that struck me when you were talking about is where, where people are, and you have to meet them where they are. And, and life is not Mm -hmm. ideal. I mean, I have clients all the time that we can't find a good body worker within an hour of them, or access to nutrition, (laughs) access to nutrition sometimes is a really tough thing. And that's one thing that traveling the country has been really eye opening for me. I mean, I grew up in a small town, I grew up in Martinez in California. And being white, I didn't really know. I didn't really know so much. And I met my husband who's Japanese at a very young age. We started dating when I was 18. We've been together for basically ever. And, you know, I I understand more of the Asian culture than I do the black culture just because of that, because I've spent a lot more time in Japanese or in Chinese environments and stuff like that. So it's different for me, but I, I just, even until I had kids and even more the last few years, I didn't realize how much representation mattered, right? Mm -hmm. Like I really didn't. And I understand now that that's 
very much my privilege, right? Like it was, it was white privilege that allowed me to grow up in a world where I never thought about representation because it wasn't an issue for me. So I understand that now, but that's something that I didn't before. And I didn't know what it was like to walk into a medical office and not see anyone who looks like you, to walk into a grocery store, to walk into anywhere and to not see anyone. And that's one thing that happened for me on the journey was we spent, we wound up spending a month in New Orleans and I just love New Orleans. We were supposed to be there like a week and we just kept extending because it was just such a wonderful city. Like, oh, my kids loved it. My husband loved it. We all had such a great time in New Orleans. And one of the things that definitely happened for me there was there were quite a few times I remember where I would go one day it was at UPS. Another day was like a small grocery store and stuff. And I walked in and I realized I was the only non-Black person in there. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I came out to my husband and I said to him, this is what it must be like for you every day. And he's like, yeah, pretty much. Because, um, you know, we've traveled the country in a lot of places. They haven't, there aren't many Japanese people around. And so it's been really eye-opening for me. And it's been something that we talk about with my kids. And we talk about, you know, as we're traveling, we've been showing them and trying to learn and talk more about systematic racism and stuff. And there were just a couple of times recently where we, we went to Atlantic City in New Jersey and it was not at all what I had expected, but we're driving around and I'm showing the kids look around and see if you can find a grocery store or a bank, you know, look at what the school looks like, look at what the houses look like and look over there at the huge big casino and then look around again. And there's still no grocery store. There was a teeny tiny, you know, 7-Eleven type place. And these are things that growing up white I didn't really understand. I really didn't know what, and I still don't know in the sense of this, what, this isn't my reality. Okay. So I understand that, but I wasn't even aware of it. You know, I wasn't aware of what it felt like to not have representation, to not see, you know, yourself in any of the choices on book covers or dolls or, you know, the people helping you or teachers or anything. And I didn't, I didn't understand that for a long time. And that's something that, I am working on and that I want to understand and grow in so that I can help my kids. Cause even though they are half Japanese, they're what people would consider white passing, which I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, but it's different for them even than it is for my husband, right? They, they don't stand out as much, right? So it's, it is different, but it, there's so much to learn in this. And I just, I just want, I want the representation to be there for everyone. And I didn't used to understand how important that was and what it would feel like to not ever see anyone who looks like you when they're taking care of you and how empowering that can be for minority women, whether they're black or native or Asian or whatever, to get breastfeeding support from someone who looks like them, to get birth support from someone who looks like them. And it's so important. It's so important. And and you are in a very blessed and unique situation with your husband and also where you're from. I know when we first, you know, talked, we were talking about both being from the Bay Area. And I feel like I have had a very unique experience as well because I grew up in the Bay. So my foundation is very diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I moved, when my parents divorced, when I was 15, I was thrown into Oklahoma and Oklahoma was not culturally diverse when I moved here at all. It was very black and white. It was very obvious. And that was something that I was not used to. Um, you know, being in California, you can go to areas of town that have, you know, a large Japanese population, that have a large Chinese population, that have a large Jewish population, that Mm -hmm. have a large Ethiopian or Eritrean population and Hispanic population. And you can go into these places and they will have their own grocery stores. You know, you could go to Chinatown and you'll see, you know, calligraphy, like you'll see that representation of the foods from their culture, of the type of medicines that, 
you know, that they that they use and that that are the cultural norm, you know what I mean, for them, even if they don't live right in that community, they can go to that community. Still, it's it's still an option. You know, you can go and get those traditional cultural foods if if you choose. And to me, that's the beauty of California is that, you know, if if I want to go and have Ethiopian food, I can go to that part of town and actually get that from someone that is Ethiopian or Japanese or Chinese or not just, you know, a specific, not an unspecific Hispanic dialect. I can go and have true Mexican or El Salvadorian or, you know what I mean? So like those different types of things are phenomenal to be able to have that. And it's sad when you are in a place like Oklahoma and it's just black and white. And then Mm -hmm. you have Hispanic people, Burmese people, people that aren't black or white. And you're looking for that representation. You're looking for, you know, someone that understands your background more so than just reading a book. Because I will say a lot of times as nurses, they'll say, okay, well, you need to learn about this culture. Okay, well, yeah, we learned that Asians like warm liquids Mm -hmm. (laughs) after birth. And that was like it. You know what I mean? So don't be being cold to the room, you know, when you're working postpartum. And it's like, it's so much more than that. And if we had women of culture that are from that culture, they truly understand the dynamics, the cultural dynamics, and they speak the language. You know what I mean? From Korean to Vietnamese to Japanese or Chinese, all of those things. My daughter is, her dad is also Mexican and Filipino. Like those are completely different. The way that they, they speak, the foods that they eat, all of those things are different. And I, I feel like we do ourselves and women a disservice when we are assuming that we can walk into a situation and, or into a, a person's home or into a room and ask, a 12-year-old to translate or ask a mother-in-law to translate and really try to talk to that mom and and help them because you're not as a mom we we always say everything is okay because we want to put forth that stability especially for our children that that we got it you know so you're not going to tell your 12-year-old to tell this postpartum nurse or your doctor I don't feel like I can do this. I don't feel like I can cope. I'm not getting any rest. I'm in pain. My nipples are bleeding. Sex with my husband is painful. Like all of the different things that are real true feelings that women have postpartumly, you're not going to express that to your 12-year-old or to your mother-in-law. But if that person that's coming to talk to you actually speaks your language, then we you're going to have a different conversation. You know, you'll be able to go in a room, shut a door and really get down to the crux of what is going on with that mom so that you can make a true assessment so that you can truly help that mom and meet her where she's at and help her. How much postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, you know, are, are we missing? You know, we, as IBCLCs, a lot of times we are the ones that are catching a lot of postpartum depression and anxiety because we spend so much time talking to our mamas and listening to them to where we can say, you know, you really might want to go and maybe talk to a counselor or, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's Language those- can be such a bridge Absolutely. and language can be so isolating. So it's like, I mean, yeah. anytime I've worked in the hospital and had to use like the translator phone or even been able to, you know, have somebody else come in, you know, maybe a, another nurse or somebody else come in and translate for me. It's a barrier, right? It slows yes. down the conversation. It, it keeps me from connecting to the patient. It can, keeps them from feeling like they can trust me. Like it, it's a barrier. And yet when someone walks in, and they actually speak the language of the patient, it's such a huge bridge and there's such a relief. 
I mean, I've right. seen it so many times when you walk into a room and they're like, okay, she's not going to speak her language. And I'm like, no, but I can go trade with someone who will, and they can take care of you today. And the relief in their face of being able to spend the day talking to someone without, you know, the the difficulty of translation, it's just such a big difference. And it, it makes a huge difference in the outcome of their care. And not just the the numbers and the outcome and stuff like that, but in their feeling of the care mm-hmm. and how do, how well do they feel cared for that day? You know, absolutely. absolutely. And then when you're talking about, unfortunately, a lot of the different, I would say, community based programs for not having another way of saying it. Mm-hmm. But to me in the hospital, right, when we worked hospital, we had the translator line. But when I'm looking at a lot of the different programs that go on where you have nurses and different community workers that are going into the home of lower income people, the option of the translator line is not there. So you are forced or they choose to ask a family member to translate. And that, to me, really does, like you does a disservice because then that mom isn't not just what she's feeling, you know, yeah, she does not feeling like she's getting the best care, but are we really giving the best care or are we doing a disservice in not providing a way to communicate well, you know, with, with that family? And in my opinion, if we are going into lower income spaces, or different cultural spaces, how much better would it be if we can train women of color to do this work as IBCLCs, midwives, doulas, to go in? Now they are tapping into that representation that we were talking about earlier that matters so much, but also in paying these people good money to do this work. Now we are bringing some economic stability to the community. It's it's a win-win for everybody. That mom is feeling better cared for. She's getting, you know, better care and, and all of those things. So that, those are all things that we can do, you know, with the birth center, being able to provide midwives. And, and for our birth center, that is what we are giving. We're not just a group of midwives. We are midwives, lactation consultants, and doulas. And, you know, also incorporating the work that I do as a health and wellness coach and an herbalist and really teaching families how to be healthy and to live better so that we can improve birth outcomes, so that we can improve breastfeeding rates and, you know, have these babies actually breastfeeding for two years and longer so that we can have good oral development and, you know, all of the things that I know you're passionate about as well as I am, you know, people need to be able to close their mouths and breathe and, you know what I mean? Like all of of the different things that, that to me, really are missed. You know, I, I I remember being in the NICU and I have these babies that we're bottle feeding them and half the formula bottle is coming out all over the burp rag, you know, mm-hmm. but we're just trying to get it in and these babies can't make a seal, but no one's paying attention to the fact that these babies aren't making a seal at the bottle. And that's a conversation that I have with my moms a lot of times, you know, if they're saying, oh, well, they'll take the bottle fine, but they, they can't breastfeed. And I, and I just, it's just a simple question of, well, does your baby dribble milk, you know, while they're taking milk from the bottle and they're like, oh, well, yeah, you know, they, yeah, we always have to have a burp cloth. Well, if it can't make a seal at the bottle, it's definitely not going to be making a seal at the breast. You know what I mean? And vice versa. So like being able to really talk to people and say, hey, these things have to be able to take place. Let's look and figure out why your baby's not making a seal, because we got to be able to make this seal to be able to extract milk from the breast so your baby can can drive your supply and all of those different types of things. I feel like it's such a huge conversation. It's 
even hard for me to stay on task as far as what <laughs> me and you were talking about because I could go on like 50 different rabbit trails. Oh my um, gosh. There's you know, just so much of it. And it's, you know, I think in the way that when you change a mom, you change the family. I mm-hmm. think that women hold together communities and that when you train women like this and when you when you train them and then hire them and have them working in these communities, those women are going to change the community because Absolutely. we hold it together. You know, women are that glue that create community, that bring people together, that bridge and and teach and support and empower. And I just think that that's unbelievable. You know, it's just such a wonderful, wonderful thing that you're doing to to try to not just look at the problem and do the same thing that's been done before, you know, but to really change it, you have to do more than than just what you can do. And I think that's the bottom line. Like my my youngest is a hugely empathetic child, like hugely empathetic and always loves, you know, always wants to help. I mean, she's the kind of person that people would say would give the shirt off her back. Like, you know, it doesn't matter where we are or how much money she has from her allowance, but she always keeps some in her purse so that when we're out, if she sees someone homeless, she can give money. And like, you know, that was her charity last year and she made blessing bags in New Orleans and handed them out. She always wants to do more and she loves taking care of hurt animals and wants to start a rescue. And one of the things we talked about though, is that there's only so many hours and days for her to help. Right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so we've been talking about how can she really make a difference. And we talked about that because she's like, well, I'll just open a rescue. And I said, okay, but how many animals can you fit in a rescue? And she's like, well, may, you know, maybe I can fit 10. I'm like, okay, but what about the other ones? And, you know, of course it distresses her to think about the fact that she can't help them all. But then when we started talking more and more about how, what she has to do instead is change other people, right? That if she teaches one person to care about, you know, animals again, get, needing to get rescued, that then that person can rescue animals. And then maybe that person will be empowered and feel motivated to then teach somebody else about rescues, right? Like, and so we started talking about that, how it grows and that there's only so many hours in the day, right? Like you as one IBCLC can only do so much in the community. But when you grow a support network like this, the the effects are going to be, you know, exponentially greater because you're creating a whole network. I will say one of the things I will, and I call her my mentor, but you know, Jennifer Tao always says, heal the mother, heal the baby. Yes. And that is something that I, that has stayed with me. And I tell people all the time, you heal the mom, you heal the baby. But yes, saying what you said takes that so much farther because if you heal the mom, yeah, you heal the baby, but if you heal the mom, and you you are healing the community and healing that mom because that mom is going to pass on hopefully that information that you are giving her. And if we can train that mom to do this work and really get out there, we're training women to be able to take care of other women, then mm-hmm. we are impacting the community. And if we can impact the community, like you said, that changes exponentially what's gonna take place and that is again like i said that's the goal right for us to have lower infant mortality rates lower maternal mortality rates to have children that are not allergic to life you know all of those things we need to change our trajectory as a nation to be healthier because right now as a nation we are so unhealthy and we're unhealthy mentally, spiritually, physically, like we need to really jump in there and start making some changes. And to me, when we're talking about really starting at the beginning, you know, we're starting at pregnancy and birth and changing the trajectory of really of of all of our lives and our children's lives. And I just, that's something that I am extremely passionate about, and I know I can't do it by myself, and I don't even want to do it by myself. I want to empower women to be able to go into the community and empower other women to make these positive changes 
for themselves and, and for their family. And, you know, I'm not saying that everywhere in the world has to be like California, but <laughs> I do love the fact that there is so much representation there. And, and growing up, seeing that representation, I think was eye-opening to me in a way that many places, especially I would say like in the Midwest where I'm at, it's almost like they're afraid almost of that change, but that's a great change to be able to be able to make that choice. I'm going to just drive over here, you know, to Chinatown, or I'm going to drive over here to what being able to have that representation of different cultures and backgrounds and ethnicities is just, it's phenomenal for, for how much knowledge you can get, you know, and, and because we all know different things. And, and I know that you realize that being with your family situation and how, you know, you know so much about Japanese culture, even though that wasn't the culture that you were raised in, you know, being from Martinez, you still have this whole other world that is open up to you because of your family. And I just think that that's phenomenal and priceless. Well, I was, I think being from California, especially being from the Bay, and you would, you probably understand this. It's like you, you don't realize to some degree how different other places are. And it's like, I, I knew other places weren't going to be like the Bay, but there's knowing it in your head. And then there's actually living it. And mm-hmm. everything from big things to little things from the food, but also, I mean, things like recycling. I mean, I've recycled since I don't remember ever not recycling things like soda cans, you know, and there's so many places in the country that they have no recycling. And I was mm-hmm. shocked or, you know, in California that we had the big lawsuit a couple of years ago with Monsanto for Roundup, right? For the glucophosphate and everyone's talking about it and so aware and Roundup and food and all of this stuff. And then I'm in Florida and I didn't realize, I thought that the lawsuit meant Roundup was pulled. Um, I didn't realize that it wasn't. And, uh, you know, I'm in Florida and I walk over in a Home Depot or Lowe's and there's like shelves of it and people Mm -hmm. are just grabbing it and going out. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe people are still using that. Like, there's things that you're used to and it's just um, it, it's just sometimes so surprising when you go out somewhere else. And I mean, everything from big things and little things. I thought there were a lot more Chinatowns in this country than there are. There's actually yeah. very few. And I was surprised by that. You know, I was really surprised by the lack of of real, you know, Chinatown or Japantown. I mean, there's really very few left in this country. It's it's surprising. You'll still find, you know, pockets of Chinese food together or things like that. But to have an actual Chinatown, like San Francisco's Chinatown is huge. Yeah. You know, it's, it's yeah. so different and you don't have that in other areas of the country. So yeah, being from California has been, it's been an eye opener traveling. I've been on the East coast now for a year, everywhere from Florida to Maine. We went as, as far East, I mean, as far West as um, Wisconsin. And then made our way back down and everything. But it's it's a very different, it's a very different culture and very different representation. But it's, you know, I think at the heart of it, so many people nowadays are trying to search for wellness because right. we're not getting the support. We're not getting the answers and in the allopathic system. And I think that the one of the blessings in our field is that pregnant or breastfeeding moms are so motivated mm-hmm. to focus on their health. You know, you you try to talk to women in their teens or early 20s and it's like, well, no, I don't have time for that. I can worry about that when I, you know, like I can eat mm-hmm. junk food and stay up all night. It doesn't hurt me. You know, I mean, that's, we were all, I think to some degree, everyone's like that in their early years of like, you know, you're just getting freedom and enjoying it. And you think that it'll last forever, that, you know, all these things will be easy forever. And as you get a little older, you realize that your body's not like that, unfortunately. And there's nothing like the motivation of a child to really wake up a woman and help them realize that they want more for their child, right? They want health for their child. And, you know, the, I think the best part of the blessing is because I have many moms who are like, don't worry about me. Just, you know, let's get the baby 
well. And I, and I tell them too, I'm like, I know that that's what you want as a mom, but remember we heal the mom, we heal the baby. And they're like, all right, I'll do it for the baby. But it's, it's so hard for moms too, to put ourselves first. I feel like, but this is a way to do it. This is a way to empower these women and to really motivate them that, you know, when we, when you change your health, you can change the trajectory of your life and those children's lives. Right. And, and one of the, you know, you mentioned access to health where I'm at in North Tulsa, we had, it's a food desert. So I think we have one grocery store now, but we're still considered as food desert because that one grocery store is for this huge, you know, area and it's, it's, it's not enough, but you have to be able to say, okay, you live in this food desert these are the options. If you don't have access to fresh food, then okay. And then also, you know, again, I'm spoiled, right? So coming mm-hmm. from California, we got the buses run all day and night, The or you could take BART, or you got like all of the different public transportations. Well, here in Oklahoma, there's not very much public transportation. We're just right. now to see buses run, you know, after dark, they still don't run all night long. So then it's like, how in the world do people get back and forth to work that work night shifts and, and different things like that. So, you know, really being able to have a conversation with someone about, okay, well, you might only get this one trip to Walmart, you know, once a month, or whatever your situation may look like, doing fresh frozen foods are going to be a better option for you than doing canned foods. When we're talking about the nutritional value of things, really being able to teach people how to eat, how to live, you know, those types of things to me, just the basics are really, really, really important. And even like you said, with getting a good night's sleep and, and those different types of things, I really feel like exposure, experience, and meeting people where they're at is really the biggest deal. So with, you know, with the birth center, one of the things that also make us very different from any of the other birth centers in our area is that we work on a sliding scale. So that way, our goal is to appeal to everyone. Our birth center is going to be extremely nice. So our affluent clients are going to be extremely comfortable. However, I believe that even if you're not affluent, you still want to be extremely comfortable. Who doesn't, right? So a lot of times when you have things that are geared towards, you know, people that don't have a lot of money, then you give them things or they're given things that are not nice. You know, and mm-hmm. why is, you know what I mean? What is that about? If I, I've been, I've had money in my life and I've had no money in my life. And at those times when I've had no money, I still cared about my children and the surroundings that I was in just as much as I care about or cared about when, when I did have money. I want to be, even if I'm broke, I want to be somewhere that's clean. You know what I mean? I want right. to be somewhere that's clean, that that has nice things that where if I sit down with my child that I still feel safe, you know, and, and, and all of those different things. So we want to create a space that everyone is going to feel comfortable and happy in, but then we are creating it to where you can come in. And even if you, you come in and we meet you where you're at. And that's what I like about, you know, a sliding scale. You're not going to come in here for free because I also believe that a lot of times if you don't have any skin in the game, like there's something about ownership. There's something about ownership when you have something. A lot of times when things are just given to people, then it's not respected or it's it's not feel like it has the same value. I found the same thing when I tried to do a free breastfeeding support group. Um, A lot of times people would sign up and not show up. And when I made it $5, if they, I mean, it was such a nominal cost. And yet I had a better turnout when I did that. Absolutely, I found so funny, but it does illustrate that point that when we pay for something, we feel that, that there must be value in it because we are willing to pay for it. 
right? Exactly. And that part of it is is a big deal for us because I am providing a service that is extremely valuable. But if I, so if you pay for it, then you really want to do it. That's something that you're also investing yourself into doing. So now, you know, I don't care if it's $5 or $50, you're coming in and we're helping you to get that care that you need and deserve no matter what. Because I understand that not everybody has insurance. And then unfortunately, when we're talking about the different state insurances, they still feel that lactation consultants, midwives, doulas, Mm -hmm. that this is alternative medicine, even though it's not, right? I don't understand how birth and babies has ever been an alternative, you know, um, like that doesn't even make sense, right? Where we women have been birthed and babies since the dawn of time. If we did not know how to do that, we would not be alive as a species. And I feel the same way about breastfeeding. We have gotten away from the basic inherited knowledge of birthing and breastfeeding, but it's still there. We just have to get back to it. You know, when I talk to moms about, you know, my past working in veterinary medicine, when you see any mammal, you know, and most people can relate to a dog or a cat, that dog or that cat is going to go find somewhere dark where they feel like their babies are going to be safe and they're going to, you know, cats will be under the house, the dog will be in the back closet somewhere, they're going to go somewhere where they can get alone and do their thing, you know, and those mamas labor and they get those babies out and those babies go to breast. And, and that's just the way that life happens. And we, they've seen those things happen. And unfortunately we don't live in that communal. It's funny to me because we always say, well, it takes a village. It takes a village. Unfortunately, most of us don't live in a village, right? right. How many of us have never seen our aunt or our mom's breastfeed. You know, Mm -hmm. I wasn't breastfed. You know, I don't remember anyone breastfeeding around me when I was little. So we don't have that cultural norm, a lot of us in America, at least, to where we have those moms and aunties and people that are demonstrating, again, that representation where we can learn how to do those things. And so I feel like we've taken all these steps forward. We need to take a few steps back. (laughs) I think for Black women, I was just going to say for Black women, you guys have a very different, unique history because it's true. A lot of white women and other minorities and such also don't have a lot of women and models around for good breastfeeding. Okay, that is is true, especially because of formula and everything from the 50s on. But... Mm -hmm. Black women have a unique history as well of not, you know, not having a breastfeeding, you know, for a long time and not having control over their own bodies and, and all of that that goes with it. So there's a different and a deeper history there. Well, yeah, but we also, so you add the trauma into it as well, but that's, that's a piece of it. But I feel like we also, because of the fact when you're talking about slavery, if that's what you're talking about. Yeah, we have that piece of it. And Black women were wet nurses. And wet nurses. A lot of time. Yeah, you know, we were nursing our slave owners' babies, but we weren't able to nurse our own babies, Right. right? So we had our babies taken away and then we're nursing the slave owners' babies. And that was, you know, that definitely was a thing. But part of that thing was, you know, the white women, like it, it wasn't as they didn't want to nurse their babies. Mm-hmm. Right. Because so, so now we're talking about when you're really getting down into the, like the bottoms of how all of that worked for black women and just pe- black people in general, we have always wanted to assimilate. Right. And if we didn't want to assimilate, we felt like we had to, mm-hmm. and then I'll change that phrasing for that. 
we felt like we had to assimilate to be able to get ahead in America. So oh, yeah. if it's if if lower, it looks you know you're looked down on if you're if you're breastfeeding. People that got money don't breastfeed. You know they have a wet nurse or else they have formula. So, you know, you're not putting your baby to breast for all kinds of different reasons in this country, you know, and and even with what me and you were talking about earlier, when we're talking about formula, pharmaceuticals, who owns all of those different things, the marketing that's being pushed to people, that formula is better. Yeah. You know, formula is better than breast milk. You know, period. You know, my mom told me that, you know, they told her that formula was better than breast milk. You know, I, I a lot of the teachings that we have gotten just aren't true, which is very sad, but it's it's not about, you know, our health. I have a friend and, you know, her doctor told her mom to smoke while she was pregnant because if she smokes while she's pregnant, she'll have an easier labor because she's going to have a smaller baby. But we had no idea <laughs> that having a lower birth weight baby is not safe, right? Now we right. do. Now we look at it, oh, you don't want a low birth weight baby. But back then it was like smoke cigarettes. You can have a, sm- a smaller baby and Let's that's every, right your out. life will be easier. It'll be great. Yeah. It's just, so, you know, really, again, that's what I'm saying. Taking those steps back to getting back to the biological norm, um, yeah. is going to be really helpful for us. And that's in our eating. That's in our, just all of it. You know, yeah. I have so many moms that are so stressed and high strung, you know, it's because life is difficult in itself. Right. Yeah. But then you add all these other stressors onto it. And then that also affects breastfeeding, you know, oxytocin and cortisol don't hang out in the same space very well. So yeah. if you, every time you go to put this baby to breast, your cortisol is surging and you're super stressed out. Oxytocin is the milk ejection hormone. And a lot of women don't understand that. And I, I purpose to make my office very calm and a place of peace. And, you know, we, the birth center is out in the woods because I want a place where moms can come and feel like they are at this, this sanctuary, at this oasis, at this place where they can let go of the stress of everyday life so that they can focus on them and that baby. And a lot of times, even I think that's why ashwagandha works so well with a lot of these moms is because it just takes enough of that edge off so that the milk will actually come out. And when I Mm -hmm. explain to moms, hey, oxytocin is that love hormone. It's the hormone when you look at your baby and you get all gooey eyed and, oh my God, I just love this baby. It's the same hormone with, you know, orgasm with your husband, all of those things, that is the milk ejection hormone. And a lot of times that's why women don't respond that well to the pump because there's nothing about the pump that turns us on, right? So it's like you're, you're trying to make, get this plastic to get this milk to come out. That's a part of meeting a mom where she's at, you know, really trying to make sure that biologically, all of these things, physiologically, all these things are firing to make this happen, you know, from that baby being able to go to breast and breastfeed from to labor, not stalling. You know, a lot of times moms will, they'll be home and labor is going great. And then you get in the car and you drive to the hospital and all the bright lights are on and you got people that you don't know and they're steady trying to shove their fingers in your vagina. And then we wonder why labor stalled because now you don't feel safe. So now that oxytocin isn't flowing. So then we have to intervene and give you pit. Like to me, like I just, it's amazing to me that no one defaults back to the basic physiological norms that we as medical providers know have to take place in order for pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding to be able to to happen. And so having, again, like I said, the birth center and really trying to encourage the midwifery model of care and lactation and having help to make sure that these things and that moms have the opportunity to have these things take place for them if they want it. 
I want to be able to, you know, provide that service. I think it's just amazing. And I am so thankful for your time today, Montika. And I just think that it's going to be wonderful. I can't wait to watch and see when this birth center opens and, you know, support in any way I can what it's doing for the community. And I think it's just, just wonderful. So I want to thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It was wonderful. I enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change you. I hope that you enjoyed the podcast today and learned something new. If you know someone who would benefit from this podcast, please share. 